This is Dollars and Change, a podcast about the intersection of business and social impact. Brought to you by the Wharton Social Impact Initiative. Welcome to Dollars and Change. I'm Catherine Klein, the Vice Dean for Social Impact at Wharton, and I'm delighted to be talking today with John Rogers. John is the Chairman, Co-CEO, and CIO of Aerial Investments, the global value-based asset management firm that he founded in 1983. Tremendously accomplished career of, uh, of investments as a leading investor, a much admired investor. He also serves on the boards of directors of McDonald's, Nike, the New York Times Company, and the Obama Foundation as well. And John, uh, Aerial Investments is the nation's oldest African-American-owned investment firm. And I know that for many years, probably your entire career, you've been interested in the racial wealth gap and how to overcome it. So thank you for joining me today to talk about this incredibly important subject. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. So let's let's uh, jump in. And I'd, I'd love you to talk about what is the racial wealth gap. Well, when we talk about it, we're really focused on the wealth gap between African-Americans and white Americans. And it's something that we have been interested in for a long, long time. I think we first started with doing um, surveys with Charles Schwab and Associates, trying to determine where African-Americans having as much saved in their 401k plans for retirement as white Americans. And of course, we came back with data that often showed that we had half as much saved for retirement as white Americans at the same education level and job description. But as the years have gone on, we've become more accustomed to more and more data. You know, Ray Bashar from the Federal Reserve of St. Louis has the best data. And one of my favorite anecdotes there is he talks about between 1992 and 2016, college-educated Blacks saw their wealth decline 10%, while college-educated Whites saw their wealth increase 96% over that roughly 25-year period. Yeah, it's just brutal. And, um, of course, the dean of Yale's business school, Kerwin Charles, has this data that shows that the wealth divide is getting better between 1940 and 1970. But since 1970, we've been on a steady decline, and it just gets worse and worse to the point now, relative to white Americans, African Americans are worse off than our grandparents were. So this wealth gap is a big, big deal in our country. We're losing a lot of GDP growth and economic wealth creation for the entire country because we're not fully participating, all of our citizens in our capitalist democracy. Yeah, these are these are stunning numbers, and I think numbers that that um, more and more people are becoming aware of. That you know, we also see that that the median white family has ten times ten times the wealth of the median black family. So you know, the income gap we may have known about the wealth gap is even huger. What's your sense? And what do you think the prevailing sense is? Like, how could we have stalled and even gotten worse uh, in this racial wealth gap over the last 30, 40, 50 years? Well, there's, there's, of course, there are many, many reasons why the wealth gap is getting worse and worse over these last 40 years or so. I think I start with, of course, is we started this race so far behind because, you know, as we came here as slaves, uh, we were supposed to get 40 acres and a mule after uh, Civil War ended. And, of course, that got taken away after, after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And throughout history, when we had Jim Crow, we had the lynchings in the South, whenever there were economic businesses that were successful, often white resentment would come in and destroy those businesses. 
So we've been behind for a very, very long time. Uh, historic segregation has been a big, big deal. Even if we bought homes uh, in our own communities, uh, often they did not have the same price appreciation as homes built in, in white communities. Of course, we suffered from redlining, not being able to get loans, not being able to get fair interest rates on the loans and mortgages we had on our, on our home ownership. So that's been a big, big deal. We've often, of course, also seen the systemic uh, you know, racism and unconscious or conscious bias that has not allowed African-Americans to participate in the parts of the economy where the wealth's being created today, primarily financial services, professional services, and technology. It's ironic that fields were, that are growing the most and have the highest profit margins have the least African-American representation. So there's so many things, but it all comes back to the fact that we started so far behind. And as you know, wealth accumulates over time. The magic of compound interest is so powerful. And we haven't been able to benefit from that. We don't have, very rarely do we have inheritances in our community. Multi-generational wealth is very, very scarce. So it is a big, big deal. And then when you're behind, you have to help your, your kids get their, their first home or help your kids get through college without too much loans. You help extended family that are suffering, parents that are struggling. It is a lot that we face as African-Americans today in our society when it comes to creating economic wealth. Uh, the final thing I would add is that corporate America that has promised to do business with minority companies through what they call supplier diversity, again, they very progressive institutions, they don't realize that by focusing on the supply chain, that's the lowest margin parts of their spend. Mm. And so often, you know, African-Americans get to do the construction and the catering and the janitorial services, and white Americans get to do the private equity, the hedge funds, the venture capital, the technology, the media, where the will wealth is created. So we have to get rid of that term supplier diversity and use the term business diversity to hopefully signal to corporate America that we can, they, they can do business with African-Americans everywhere and similar with nonprofit institutions in our local communities. John, you, you've um, already given us a, just a, a powerful picture of the wealth gap and just how systemic it is, how multi-determined, how long-lasting. I'd, I'd love to dig into some of the strategies. Like how do you overcome a problem that is as embedded as this? Um, you know, you've talked about compounding wealth. It, this, it seems very daunting to overcome this. And let me ask one thing that you don't talk about so much, um, but many people do, and I'm curious how you see this, is home ownership. So when we talk about the wealth gap, a lot of people will say this goes back to all this, the factors you described and redlining and um, you know the difference in home ownership between uh, white families and black families and the ability to build wealth in that way is critical. Is home ownership um, an important part of the path forward? In some ways, it, it's, it's problematic, I guess, is the best way to say it. The data that I shared with you between 1992 and 2016, how the wealth gap had exploded for college-educated uh, African-Americans, part of the problem was we are overly invested in real estate relative to white Americans. We're comfortable with real estate. We trust real estate. It's tangible. It's right there in our communities. But when the financial crisis happened in 2008 and 2009, because we almost had all of our eggs in one basket, we were devastated by that housing-related recession that occurred. More white Americans have more well-rounded portfolios. Mm -hmm. So even maybe they might be losing money on their real estate, but they're bouncing back on their stock market investing. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, white Americans are often going to have properties in the communities where they grew up. 
you know, here in Chicago, the North Shore and the Western suburbs where so much of the wealth lives. And those homes bounce back from the recession much faster than uh, housing that is closer to inner city, poor neighborhoods, which all the challenges of those poor neighborhoods, you know, challenge our society with today. So home ownership is, is, isn't always the answer because of these challenges, often also because our homes are not in the same communities as white Americans, we pay higher interest rates on our mortgages, you know, and ultimately, again, the, there's the opposite of the benefit of compounding. Mm-hmm. It just gets you further and further into trouble when you've had to pay higher interest rates than white Americans that are similarly situated. So the remnants of segregation and uh, uh, and the redlining in our cities is just absolutely brutal. Um, actually, I know a little bit about this too. My grandfather actually helped to uh, with the Hansberry versus Lee case in the Supreme Court, fighting against restrictive covenants here in Chicago. And um, it was a groundbreaking case that helped to open up doors for black home ownership in our community. But it was really too little too late. I mean, we're still suffering from all of the past discrimination and unfairness when it comes to housing. And this finally closed by saying that I just think it's so critical that we get African-Americans more involved in the equity markets, more comfortable in understanding how you can make real, create real wealth over time in the stock market. So I'm I'm struck by your use of the word comfort and you used the word trust um, just a moment ago. You know, is there, do you perceive, do you observe a lack of comfort, a a lack of trust um, among Black adults, Black individuals who could invest uh, more in the stock market, could invest in uh, different assets and are not doing so. Is that is that what you're observing? Anecdotally, I've observed it from when I got started in the financial services industry um, over 40 years ago now. Um, there is a lack of trust in the markets. It's something that we're not familiar with it. It's scary. It's, the markets are so volatile. And you know, up until the last several years with, with what's happened on the internet, you know, you had to have a financial advisor, you had to go into the office. And most of those times, you know, most brokerage firms and financial advisory firms have no African-American brokers and advisors. So you're going into a whole foreign community, having a broker that doesn't look like you. It's really hard to establish that trust and confidence uh, in the markets. And if you didn't have a father or a grandfather or aunt or uncle who talked to you about it over the dinner table and got you comfortable, mm-hmm. it's just really, really hard to overcome that barrier. And the work that we've done with Charles Schwab and Carrie Schwab, the data comes back consistently over the years, is that we ultimately where it shows up is we put more of our money not only into real estate, but into insurance related products. And that's just what all the facts show. And then when we do invest in our 401k plans, we're going to often take the most conservative investments uh, and invest in the most conservative options within our 401k plans and not really benefit again of the power of the compounding of traditional equities. Interesting. Have you found, I, I know you've thought a lot about the, the range of strategies to, to work to overcome the racial wealth gap, and I want to get to some of those strategies, but is, is, is outreach, is education to the Black community an important part of this, uh, this puzzle as well? We do think that is an important part of solving this problem. Um, and at Ariel, we try not just to admire the problem, but to think about solutions. And uh, my friend Arnie Duncan, uh, who became Secretary of Education, as you know, Arnie started his career at Ariel and was in charge of all of our community affairs 25 years ago. 
he started a small public school called the Aerial Community Academy. It's K through eight. And after we had been up and running for a couple of years, we got the idea that we're a financial services company. We should be teaching kids about the stock market. And so what we did there at the Aerial Community Academy, we gave every first grade class a $20,000 class gift. And over the first six years, Aerial Investments would invest the money and talk to the kids, show the kids how we were making investment decisions, have them work with our analysts and hear from them. And we'd go down to the school and talk to them about how to do this research and embedded financial concepts within the overarching curriculum of the school to teach the kids the importance of scarcity and, again, compound interest and all the things you need to know. And then in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, turn over the portfolio to the kids so they could start to pick real stocks with real money. And we try to bring in role models to the school. Over the years, we've had everyone from Joe Monsueto, who founded Morningstar, to uh, Magic Johnson come down and visit the kids at the school. And my, my favorite thing we used to do when, when Don Thompson was the CEO of McDonald's, where I've been on the board for 18 years, we used to take 40 kids or so every year to the McDonald's annual meeting. And um, they would get to, someone kid would get to ask one question in the annual meeting. That's great. And after the meeting was over, they had to go spend an hour with Don Thompson, his wife, Liz, and Andy McKenna, the chairman of the board, and learn what it was like to be CEO of one of the largest public companies in the country. And so those are the kind of things we wanted kids to get exposed to careers in business, mm-hmm. get exposed to careers in financial services, because it's not only about learning how to save and invest, but also to think about more lucrative career options and the bigger dreams if you're getting exposed to folks in these parts of the economy, again, where real wealth is created today. So as you think about the strategies, and you've described some to overcome the, the racial wealth gap. What else, what do you regard as you know, the, the most important? If you could reach people, you can reach corporations through this podcast, you know, I hope. Uh, what is it that you want them to understand and to hear and to do? Well, I think there's two broad areas. One is in the education side. I would like to see, and you know, I chaired President Obama's Council on Financial Capability for Young Americans. And the recommendation we gave the president after all the work we did was, we wanted him to be able to encourage corporate America to partner with urban public schools and in particular financial services companies to partner with urban public schools and expose kids to this great industry, which would benefit. Just think about it. If you have, you'll have more entrepreneurs, kids are more financially literate. You'll have more kids getting into financial services, becoming financial advisors, helping their parents and grandparents and extended family. It becomes a beautiful uh, circle if you can do that through public education. Mm-hmm. And we just think that's, Sacrosanct. The other thing we would hope to see corporate corporations do and anchor institutions, universities, hospitals, museums, and foundations to make sure that not only are they, let's use a university as an example, it's the right thing to have more minority students. It's great to have more minority professors. But you can also use the money that you're spending because often a university is the largest employer, the largest entity spending money in a local community. And to make sure that you're getting out of your comfort zone and not only working with your traditional white male owned firms, but using minority firms whenever you have a chance. And in the parts of the economy, which I've said several times, where the wealth created. So using, if you're a university, you should have black law firms, accounting firms, consulting firms, advertising agencies, public relations firms, money managers for the endowment. Everything you spend money on, not just the construction and the catering, which are the lowest margin parts of the spend. And there's data that supports that. So 
I, you know, the University of Chicago, where I'm vice chairman, we have the best program in the country. We've gone in 12 years from working with zero minority-owned firms and professional services, basically, to now over 95 success stories. And it's just so fantastic. We see these entrepreneurs every year at the two-day symposium coming back, thanking the vice presidents. Often there's a speaker who talks about how important the University of Chicago contract has been in developing and growing their business. And so first and foremost, uh, we call it one of the three Ps that we try to get all kinds of leaders to do is make sure when you're spending your money, when you're purchasing services, you spend money in all categories, you keep track of the spending by category, and you get rid of the term supplier diversity and use the term business diversity that University of Chicago coined. So that's my number one thing. And what I'm hearing is purchasing and, and professional services. So it, on a, at a large right. scale, and, and I've heard you say, you know, who's your lawyer, right? Yeah. Who's your, who's your, who are you contracting with for your IT services? Right. Who's your investment banker? And you guys know at Wharton, I mean, you, know, you look at your trustee list, many of your trustees are people who made their wealth in those careers. Sure. You, know, you know, our civic committee in Chicago, the top 84 companies, the majority of the companies are in professional or financial services. Zero of the 84 companies are in construction or, or catering. And again, all the well-meaning universities I've talked to always point to, when we construct a new building, we'll have a black contractor. And I'm like, I said, that's a modern day Jim Crow. The mm-hmm. black and brown people do the catering and the construction and the, and the white men do the private equity, the hedge funds, the venture capital and the technology. It's just not right. And then the second thing you want corporations to do, and Exelon does this better than anyone, you know, which that owns Pico Energy in Philadelphia and, and ComEd in Chicago. They keep track of all of the professional services companies that work with, with the Exelon. They have to have diverse teams on the relationships with Exelon. So mm-hmm. they hire Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan or Deloitte or Accenture, whoever they're hiring, they're going to make sure there are women and people of color on the relationship in senior positions. Otherwise, they won't be able to do business with Exelon. And Exelon honors all the firms that have done the most to you know, support minority leaders within their institutions by having a big dinner every year at the Art Institute, where they literally give out trophies to the companies that are doing the best job. So those are the two areas that I think are critical. Spending money with minority businesses, because as we grow, we're going to hire hundreds of folks in our communities. We're going to be role models for our communities. We're going to create philanthropy and political empowerment in our communities. And then make sure that we're developing minority leaders and majority companies that can do great things in the companies that they're engaged with. Interesting. Can you talk about uh, Project Black, a new project of aerial investments? Because I think it's it's an interesting combination. Of, you know, it has it has some relationship to these strategies you've just been describing. It does have some relationship to what we've been spending a lot of time thinking about these last twenty five or thirty years. But this actually is Melody Hobson's project. Melody Hobson's our co CEO of Aerial. She's been at our firm thirty years. Um, she started out as a summer intern and. I met her as a 17-year-old prospective Princeton student. And so Melody is this dynamic leader, you know, in financial services. And she's on the board of J.P. Morgan Chase. And she and Jamie Dimon came up with this idea of Project Black, where we would hopefully over time, you know, we would raise have a substantial private equity firm that would differentiate itself by primarily investing in African-American and Latinx businesses and trying to build those businesses into businesses of scale. We think that, that you know, it's important to give microloans to small business. We understand that. 
But if you really want to impact our society, we have to have minority businesses at a real scale. You know, in Chicago right now, the top 150 privately held companies, there are zero African-American companies in the top 150. Um, 20 years ago, we had three of the top 150. So we're basically nowhere on the map of building businesses of scale. So the idea of Project Black would be, we would do it two ways. One, if there's a you know, black or brown company that it needs growth capital to get to scale, we would be there as a funder. And you know, hoping that that company would be able to you know, get to hundreds of millions of dollars in sales and you know, real, real even down margins. The second thing we would do is if you find a majority company that's going to spin off a subsidiary or sell uh, sell a subsidiary, we would match them with successful African-American or Latinx entrepreneurs who would use our capital to buy one of these businesses that is being spun out of a majority company. A majority majority, uh, white owned, is that what you mean? Exactly. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Mm-hmm. And this is actually borrowed from the McDonald's model. McDonald's has had a great history over you know, 60 years or more of working with Black-owned franchisees. But what many people don't know is that they have been extraordinarily successful in building out over 20 minority-owned um, real businesses of scale. And they've done it primarily by finding a, one of their big suppliers that is going to sell a division, or maybe there's a, a, a supplier who's going to retire they would match that person with an outstanding executive, sometimes someone who worked at McDonald's, and help them uh, find the capital to buy the business. They would get trained and, and mentored as they took over the business. And then they would have a contract, most importantly, for McDonald's to say they're going to buy X number of sausages or croutons or whatever mm-hmm. it happens to be from that company. So what people often talk about the importance of access to capital, but I often say access to customers is just as important. Because again, if you've got McDonald's as your anchor client, you're not gonna have trouble getting bank loans for the most part, you know, or raising capital for, for, from uh, investors. So that's the second part of this is trying to, not only can we build businesses by directly investing in current businesses, helping an entrepreneur buy a business. And then at the end of the day, we also are gonna be connecting these entrepreneurs to major corporations that are interested in doing business with minority-owned companies, help these companies find customers. And so we're building relationships there at the same time, which we think is really important. Great. We need to wrap up shortly. It's always a shame because I always enjoy talking with you and can keep going for a long time. Maybe I'll sneak in two questions here. One, I'd I'd love you to talk about um, boards of directors, diverse boards of directors and, and, you know, how important is is the diversity of a board of the board as a driver of of changes in the racial wealth gap? Is this an important strategy, or is this window dressing? Or when is it important, and when is it window dressing? Well, I would say that having more diverse boards is is good. I mean, that's a positive. We want to see more women and people of color in the corporate boardroom. But as you know, I've been working with your colleague Stephanie Creary around the idea that it's just not good enough to have a black or brown director, you need to make sure that you're putting a black or brown director in place who's shown a commitment to social and economic justice throughout their careers and a willingness to follow in the late Congressman John Lewis's footsteps and make good trouble when they're in these leadership roles. And when mm-hmm. they see things that are not fair and not unjust, that they feel comfortable speaking out and pointing out these injustices. Because otherwise, if you have diverse board members who are not willing to be outspoken, 
it actually gives cover for the white status quo to say things must be A-OK because my minority directors aren't complaining. We must be terrific at this DNI work that we're doing. Mm-hmm. So it's really, really important to make sure you have the right diverse board members in place if you really want to drive change and make a dent in this, this uh, wealth gap that we have in our country. My best example of that is that, uh, you know, uh, Melody Hobson, again, my co-CEO, has this history of speaking out everywhere. And, um, you know, uh, Adam Grant wrote a book with Cheryl, uh, who, um, you know, has just done extraordinary work in her leadership role at Facebook. And uh, Cheryl Sandberg has said that she started to understand the importance of writing Lean In after she saw Melody lean in time and time again for Mm -hmm. women and people of color on a board that they were on together. And so it's a long answer there, but I think it's just so critical that you get people who are willing to lean in and make a difference in in the boardroom. And that's a a great segue to my last question for you, which is about communication and and the kinds of communication that um, creates change. I mean, in this country, there is, you know, such such a painful racial history. A lot of people are very uncomfortable talking about race, perhaps particularly white people are particularly uncomfortable talking about race, um, if, I, if I generalize. Is there, you know, as in this time, in this year, are there messages, frameworks that you see resonating with people, the starting point for a, for a serious conversation for people to engage and think deeply about and take action to close the racial wealth gap? I would say I think there's a couple of things happening in this current environment. I think number one by far is the, the, the George Floyd assassination really did, of course, startle America and made a lot of white CEOs think for the first time that maybe this game is not as fair for African-Americans as maybe they originally thought. And many of the CEOs are impacted by their children who are profoundly impacted by some of the tragedy that we faced in our country. So I think there is a sense of real true progress because of that. The second thing is I think we have a very progressive Congress, one of the most progressive in history, if not the most. We have a progressive White House right now. And there's an opportunity where the civil rights leaders are having a real impact. When you have leaders like Joyce Beatty, chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, Maxine Waters, Greg Meeks, Hakeem Jeffries, all these these got people who are now empowered to uh, make change and make a difference. So there's an optimism that I haven't seen in my 40 years of thinking about this issue, that there are people really interested in, 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 in fighting to make this wealth gap you know, get smaller and smaller over time. And I think the stars are aligned to have the momentum where you can have the corporate community working with the political community and the nonprofit community to really, truly, truly make systemic change here and move us in the right direction. Great. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. And I appreciate your leadership in, in bringing this attention, this issue to the floor. So thank you so much for, for being with us. Fantastic to talk to you. Thank you. It's been really fun. Dollars and Change is brought to you by the Wharton Social Impact Initiative. To learn more, visit us at socialimpact.wharton.upenn.edu.